Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What's a progressive? We hear constantly about the rift in the Democratic Party between its progressive wing and its moderate one. But what exactly was progressivism? And why do we hear the word progressive, but not so much about progressivism? The answer may lie in the fact that modern-day progressive Democrats, or those who ally with them, such as Bernie Sanders, don't want to dwell on the fact that much of their political program descends from political leaders they now disown, such as Woodrow Wilson, or who were at at various times Republicans, like Theodore Roosevelt. Additionally, progressives are probably not eager to be so openly opposed to the basic principles promulgated in the Declaration of Independence and embodied in the U.S. Constitution as their political and intellectual forebearers were, because that might hurt the poll numbers among average Americans. Moreover, the progressives really do not need to embrace the idea of the rule of the elites and the need for an administrative state and to fight for those things, because that is the world we live in, thanks to the progressive thinkers and leaders profiled in the 2021 book, America Transformed. The Rise and Legacy of American Progressivism by Ronald J. Pestrito. The book is must-reading for everyone who wants to understand what unelected people, such as the personnel of federal agencies, city managers, federal judges at many levels, and state and state employees, and so forth, yield so much power and are so unanswerable to the bulk of the population. Pestrito reveal, reveals a dual legacy of progressivism, to wit, by illuminating and meticulous examinations of the writings and speeches of such well-known figures as Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt, and a lesser extent but influential thinkers such as the theorists and academics Richard Ely, Frank Goodnow, and James Landis, Pestrito documents how the progressives disempowered average Americans, even as those figures harped on the theme of accountability in government and dismissed the safeguards for individual liberty that the Constitution provides. Pestrito traces the intellectual incoherence of much of progressive thinking and policy 1880 1945, circa 1880 to 1945, and demonstrates how the conflict between the off-stated concern of the progressive left for the common man and the reality of the bureaucratization that has taken place in that period has its roots in the progressive era, and why so many Americans are frustrated by the fact that Congress has willingly signed over to the administrative state the right to write its own rules, to determine if those rules are fair, and to implement those rules and and regulations. It is not for nothing that Prestrudo uses the word transform, given the curtailment of involvement by everyday Americans in their own governing processes that the progressives ensured. A particular strength of his book is its exposure of the way that progressives from Wilson down to Obama and since have disingenuously claimed that Abraham Lincoln was a proto-progressive, even though Lincoln was one of the most ardent, eloquent proponents of the Declaration of Independence and Natural Rights. We often hear from progressives that we need to be on the right side of history. In this valuable book, Ronald J. Pestrito explains to us the intellectual backgrounds of such platitudes. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Ronald J. Pestrito, the author of the 2021 book, America Transformed, The Rise and Legacy of American Progressivism. Thank you for joining us today, Ron. Thanks for having me, Hope. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, I very much enjoyed the book, as I was telling you before we got started, that I've read every word of it, including the index, and it was really fascinating, especially the information about Theodore Roosevelt, which we'll get to in a minute. 
as I mentioned in the intro, you used the word transformed in the title of your book. Could you please tell us exactly what was transformed, when, and by whom? You say in the book something striking that I had not realized, and I definitely, as Mr. Trump might say, this I did not know. You write, while criticism of the Constitution can be found during any period of American history from 1787 downward, onward, sorry, from 1787 onward, the progressive era was unique in that such criticism, criticism formed the backbone of the entire movement. Could you talk about that a little bit? I was really surprised to realize that that was their entire mantra was the constitution is outdated. We need to be efficient. We need to be modern. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it, it was their, uh, it was their entire program, but rather that, uh, what they were advocating, they were very forthright about the fact that what they were advocating required a transformation of our constitutional order, that it, where it required a repudiation of the principles the country had been been founded on. It's actually one of the one of the nice things uh, being a scholar of progressivism. Uh, these these uh, men and women are are very forthright. They're very sort of intellectually, for the most part, intellectually straightforward. Uh, they tell they tell you. So you sort of you sort of start from you know concretely what is it they want to do. And there's there's a program of change, and a lot of us are familiar with, with these. Uh, you you can you know, take a look at the, the Progressive Party platform, for example, when there was a progressive candidate in 1912. Uh, you'll recognize a lot of things in there, by the way. Uh, and then, but you can work your way backwards and say, okay, in order to, uh, or in order for the government to get into all of these new areas, in order for it to take on all of these new tasks. Well, what's what's what kind of government would we have to have? And that's that's the thing that the progressives were very forward about. They they understood that in, in order for uh, us to have the kind of government that they were calling for, this was different than than the original deal. This was different than uh, the original social compact that the American founders uh, made in our constitution. And, and they simply said that, and, and they, they understood the sweeping nature of what they were proposing. Well, I was going to say that they also, so you're saying that they had, it was just utilitarian uh, uh, approach, but also didn't they have sort of a, a natural dislike and disdain for the concept of natural rights? And could you discuss the concept of natural rights and am I correct that they had a disdain for it? Is it, or did they just consider it in the way and, and adequated? Well, that's a good question, and um, I think you could, you really could. Uh, it sounds like a cop out to say, well, both, but, yeah. but I think that's actually true. So, as as I said, um, it's the the kind of constitutionalism, the old constitutionalism certainly stood in the way as a practical matter of much that they wanted to do. Mm. Uh, but, you know, these were uh, principled men and women. They were well-educated. They, they knew very, they, they weren't just, you know, sort of kind of ordinary run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, political operators who, you know, were looking for some kind of, you know, rhetoric or high principled argument to sort of throw into the mix, you know, quite to the contrary, they, uh, many of them were academics, uh, initially, mm -hmm. uh, they, they were well read in, uh, not just, you know, the history of political thought, but in, in terms of the, in the history of, of American thought and, 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 
constitutionalism. <laughs> and so they understood very well that uh, the reason why government was limited in our systems because it was dedicated to certain core fundamental but relatively limited tasks. The securing, as the Declaration of Independence says, the securing of certain rights we have uh, from God and from uh, and from nature, uh, rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, uh, and that that this was the original compact. This was the original the original deal. And so, government is only legitimate insofar as it it does this particular job. Insofar as it secures our natural rights, uh, and so that. When we, we, they, they they rejected that. Uh, they were uh, educated in a political philosophy that was very hostile to the idea of natural rights. Uh, most of them were educated in uh, Germany or had as teachers those who had been educated in Germany and the, the, the philosophy of, of the all-powerful state, uh, of the historical evolution of the state. That, that's what they really imbibed and, and believed in, where you wouldn't talk about a single just standard for government, you know, as you know, natural rights that that's appropriate for all men everywhere, as say Lincoln would say or Jefferson would say, uh, but rather that you would uh, the government simply kind of floated along and uh, adapted itself to the spirit of the age. And so, if if during one particular period of time you needed government to be much more powerful for it to have uh, aims contrary to the original natural rights understanding. Well, that's just what history would require. Uh, and so, uh, they were very much opposed to the natural rights principles of the declaration. Uh, they did understand that those principles necessitated a limited government constitutionalism. Uh, and they were educated enough to know that, that uh, a different political philosophy, uh, really a different fundamental regime had to be adopted. Uh, if in fact, they were going to move forward in a way that they thought the country should should go. Well, you mentioned the, the trajectory of history, and they had very different understandings. You make a fascinating, one of the most fascinating aspects of your book is the way that Lincoln viewed history and the trajectory of history and the fundamental, the way he viewed human beings versus, which is, which is rather dark and slightly distrustful, even though he was a good and honest person, but he was a little leery of them having seen in his own day what, what human beings could do to one another. But the, you make the point that the, the progressives had a much more, well, it was, it, it's interesting though, in your book, you make the point that they were much more optimistic in a, in a way about human humankind, but they also wanted to control human beings via this enormous bureaucracy. Could you talk about the, 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 the difference between Lincoln's view and Madison's view and the fact that the progressives were so inconsistent in their view that, well, we need, we need human beings to be free, but we're going to control them by a, an expert class that will rule over them. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, you you really when when you're talking about Lincoln on this question, you're really talking about Madison and the founders on this question because mm -hmm. the you know, I would say that that the view you had of human nature that 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 drove them, that drove the founders was a, a sober view, right? Mm -hmm. That that on the one hand, human beings are uh, are different than, you know, than the ordinary beastly creation. They have reason and therefore uh, they have the attributes that make them capable of self-government. That's on the, on the high end. Uh, but we shouldn't be so uh, impressed with that, uh, they would say, that we forget 
that they also have a base nature, uh, that they also have, um, uh, that they're very self-interested, that they're, that they're, uh, they have passions, which often get the better of their reason. And th- this will lead them to uh, act, try to act and use the power of government in their own narrow interests in ways that may harm the rights of others and the common good. And so, you know, Madison and the, and the founders were very uh, cognizant of, of both of these elements of human nature, the high and the low, as it were. Mm-hmm. And the argument was that the science of government requires an appreciation of both. Uh, and and framing it just right, and uh, I think the the core progressive argument is that 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 essential sobriety, that essential caution about just unleashing the power of the state, putting it the hands of 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 uh, of say a democratic majority, uh, that that we had to get over that. That this is why the argument for historical progress is so important. H- history, the art, the progressives argued. History had solved that problem. History had helped us, had made us better, uh, that we were much more capable of uh, wielding the power of government for good than perhaps we had been during the founder's time. And thus, uh, that we need not be nearly as uh, cautious about uh, the nasty things that human beings might do with the power of government as the founders had been. Yeah. Uh, now you're quite right to say that, you know, so you have this kind of utopianism that's there in the progressives. So it's mm-hmm. very, very important to understanding them. Uh, but on, on the other hand, you also have this very strong drive among progressives, uh, while they want to empower the people in, in politics and in government at the same time, uh, they really want to remove a lot of decision-making power from, from political institutions and place that power in the hands of those who were deemed to be experts, those who were deemed to, to have a kind of scientific education. And of course, that has all kinds of implications that we've been living through for the last uh, year and a half that I think uh, everyone now can see. So uh, they, uh, you know, the, the argument for a kind of uh, o- overcoming of this this propensity in human nature to be self-destructive uh, isn't all that it's cracked up to be uh, because they, they, they're at the same time they're making the case that w- what that really means isn't that, you know, the people themselves somehow get to rule, but rather uh, that, that those uh, who are, who are kind of most enlightened, uh, who yeah. are educated, uh, that they can speak more confidently for the people and speak on, on their behalf. Well, I was going to say, apropos of, of the difference between Woodrow Wilson and, and Lincoln, and you make so there are several entries again in your n- index that that indicate that you have the you have the phrase abuse abuse link, Lincoln abuse of by, and then you have Wilson and the progressives in general and so forth. And I wanted to ask, particularly about Wilson, that do you was he distorting? I'm going to give you th- several options, and we'll maybe work we can work through. These are my theories that Lincoln position on that, that Wilson was distorting Lincoln's position on the Declaration of Independence and, and other aspects of the founding era because A, Lincoln was, I'm sorry, L- Wilson was dishonest and willful exploiting the hallowed place of Lincoln in the American pantheon for Wilson's own professional advancement as a scholar and later as a politician, or B, Wilson did not have access to the scholarly works, uh, scholarly editions of Lincoln's work that scholars of later generations did and so was simply in a state of ignorance about what, he, what Lincoln actually wrote and thought, or C, Wilson was simply sloppy. Well, I think um, 
it's it's very common for politicians during many eras of American politics, not just the progressive era, to want to claim the Lincoln legacy, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know Lincoln's popular uh, for good reason. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, of course, you want to point back to this towering figure in American political history and, you know, claim that he would somehow have endorsed uh, your program or he symbolized what you and your movement are, uh, to, uh, what they stand for. You know, that's, so that's very, very common. Uh, and the progressives made a particular use of that symbol uh, and and the the argument was something like like this. They they said, look, you know, Lincoln came along uh, at a moment when uh, the, the the times called out for great change. Uh, we had this sort of very limited government, this very decentralized government, but the the you know the circumstances were it was time for us to become a, a much more uh, kind of unified nation. And so Lincoln was willing, the progressives argue, to uh, turn aside from the earlier founding era limitations on government and uh, sort of turn us into a modern national state, that, that Lincoln was really the first progressive. And it's that, you know, it's that mindset, they argued, that we that we should now adopt in, in the progressive era. We should be willing to to turn our back on the outdated forms of the past and do more with the national state. Uh, and of course, uh, th- that characterization of Lincoln, uh, I think, uh, betrays, uh, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's a sort of willful ignorance or uh, just sort of an accidental <laughs> ignorance, but, but it does betray an ignorance of Lincoln uh, because to suggest that Lincoln somehow, uh, that what animated his statesmanship was a desire to turn away from the founding is, is of course, exactly the opposite. For anyone who knows anything about Lincoln, has mm-hmm. actually read anything that Lincoln said or wrote. Uh, that's actually exactly the opposite of what Lincoln stood for. And if you look at you know, Lincoln's most well-known and important speeches, you know, as he's uh, talking about this, you know, the, the slavery crisis and the expansion of the territories and all the big controversies and the Lincoln-Douglas debates and so on. All of those speeches in the 1850s, I mean, I think every single one of them uh, is about the danger that uh, faces us because we're getting away from the founding. Uh, Those speeches are a call to return to the principles of the Declaration, uh, to natural rights. The whole argument against slavery is a natural rights argument. That's the whole point uh, of his statesmanship uh, on this question. Uh, And so uh, it's just an incredible um, uh, twisting of Lincoln's words and actions to suit the purposes of progressive era uh, uh, leaders who had very, very different aims than Lincoln did. Maybe it was because too, that he was obviously an extremely skillful administrator. And so were the men of his cabinet, like Stanton, that they, that they liked the idea of the professionalism of that. And- well, there's certainly, I mean, there, there's much, uh, uh, historical record. I mean, Lincoln was in favor of, I mean, Lincoln did, uh, use the power of the national government, obviously, in very robust ways. I mean, there's no, you know, not to argue otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, by the way, uh, even in the founding era, people like Alexander Hamilton were obviously no 
shrinking violets about national administrative power. Uh, and so we could, you know, I think partly it comes from uh, a, a misimpression we may have of the founders constitution, right? Uh, that the, the idea that somehow uh, what we had under the founders constitution was a kind of, you know, libertarian dreamland, you know, which is absolutely minimalist government. I mean, that that's, that's not the Federalists. That's not Hamilton. That's not Madison. That's not the 87 Constitution. Uh, it's very robust government for limited constitutional ends and with a very careful political science that channels it in the, in the right ways. Uh, and, and so uh, that's, you know, sometimes we have this kind of false, this false picture of everything up to progressivism was, you know, a, a total, uh, total minimalism for the, for the national government, then you have the 20th century and you get massive statism. But of course, it's, you know, that's actually not how it was. I mean, the states were very much in possession of their police powers, used them. Uh, and, and so I think it's much more nuanced than that. Yeah, that would be missing the whole debate between Andrew Jackson and Nicholas Biddle if you said, well, there was never Among any discussion things. of it. Yeah, <laughs> many other things. Good point. Yes. But I, I wanted to say, apropos of your discussion of, of speeches, that you do such a marvelous job in the book of illustrating what they actually said and wrote. And I, I, I was really struck by, I was going to mention the, the, the fact that what you're, what you're writing about Theodore Roosevelt is just eye-opening. I, I knew he was kind of uh, erratic and that rash and, and bellicose and so forth, but but I didn't realize that his his ideas about private property were astonishingly radical. And I would I would hope that your book would send Republicans in particular back to, to reading what Roosevelt wrote and stop being taken in by the flamboyant, colorful personality aspects of him and, and think about what he was what he wanted was was almost a childlike anger at anybody that thwarted him and stood in his way. And it was really quite dangerous. But um, I wonder. Well, you're right. I mean, you're right about that. He, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's funny what happens when you actually read what people said and wrote. Right. Uh, I was and, really struck by that in your book. It was a marvelous service. You know, you have to remember I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an academic myself uh, by, by trade. And, and so um, I, I come to write, I'm not used to writing popular books. I don't really write popular books. I, I come at it from the point of view of, of, you know, someone who just kind of goes digging around, uh, and, and, um, you know, in my earlier work on Wilson, especially, you know, I just started with, with volume one of his papers and dug my way forward. Uh, and so it, it, it you kind of go where the evidence leads you. And that's, you know, I think my writing style, um, he reflects that. Uh, and sometimes people are, are surprised by that. They expect the kind of, you know, popular kind of right-wing argument. Uh, and, um, you know, I have my, I have my, my political, uh, principles of course, which are obvious enough, but, uh, I try not to, uh, to let that get in the way. And especially for, con you know, for conservatives, for Republicans, the TR question is very interesting. And I've, I've had some very interesting debates with, with thoughtful conservatives about TR because TR is, um, he's attractive to many on the right. And, yeah. and, and, you know, he's also a great American and one, one does, I have to say, feel badly for criticizing TR because he is such a great American character and such a great American patriot. Uh, and I think admirable in, in so many ways in terms of personal qualities. 
Uh, and so he's he's much more of a kind of mixed bag on that question than say somebody like Woodrow Wilson, whom it's it's not hard to dislike at all. Mm. Uh, but TR, I mean, people like TR, especially nowadays on the right, where you know the idea is the hey the you know the elites, the special interests are kind of controlling things, and we need a resurgence of of the people and the people gaining control over government, uh, regaining control over government, perhaps through a strong leader. That's very attractive, uh, and I think I think for good reason it's very attractive um, to many on the right today. The problem is, as you have. Uh, intimated in your question, uh, TR is somebody whose principles, uh, I think, ought to scare very severely uh, anybody who who uh, who is afraid of the excessive power of the state. Uh, TR, uh, you you cannot be an advocate of limited government and a fan of TR's political principles. Those the the, the that's would be incompatible uh, to be that and and. Uh, any straightforward read of what he said and and wrote uh, would would prove that uh, he got extremely impatient with anybody asserting limits on government, with anybody mm. who said uh, property rights. You know, I you know this, this what you want to do seems to violate my basic natural rights. Uh, he, you know, uh, he claimed to speak for the people, always to speak for the people against the special interests. Uh, and well, what did the people think? The people think, thought whatever TR said they thought. Mm. Uh, and so he was, uh, if, if you think the government has become too powerful, uh, in the 20th and now 21st century, uh, you need to look at TR very, very carefully on that front. Yeah. It seems to me in a surprising way that the most, the, the, the leader of the day that I think of that he most resembles is Bernie Sanders, who has this very simplistic view of, well, everything's a special interest that opposes anything I want. That it's just the same, the same sort of bromidic demonizing of anyone who stands in the way of progress. You know? Well, and you know, there is, there is, uh, I mean, TR, both TR and Wilson, are often thought to be socialistic when when one looks at you know their policies and their principles they they were not socialist sort of capital s socialist they they in fact both ran against a socialist in the 1912 election they were critical of the state socialist movement but they weren't critical of the socialists for the reason that most say conservatives or americans would be critical of socialism right most most of us would say, well, we don't like socialism because we believe in individual liberty. Uh, we believe in property rights. We believe in, uh, you know, that that the individual has certain uh, rights against the state and that his rights aren't there to be just disposed of when it's con- thought to be convenient. Uh, and we don't think that the state ought to be in charge of managing things and, uh, you know, sort of telling us what to do with our liberty and our property. Well, T.R. and Wilson opposed socialism in certain respects, but they didn't oppose it for those reasons. And, uh, you know, that's, in fact, Wilson has a very revealing essay. I may, uh, I'm sure I do in my book somewhere, quote from it, uh, an essay uh, called Socialism and Democracy, where he ba- he basically says, look, progressive Democrats and socialists are in principle basically the same thing. And he's just very straightforward about that. He's, and he's what we have in common fundamentally is that neither of us believes that the state has any fundamental limitations to its role or to its power over individuals. 
just says it straight up. And I don't think there's anything in that uh, that TR disagreed with. Hmm. Are people like Anthony Fauci the the quintessential embodiment of what of the managerial class, the insulated from the insulated from political uh, ans- uh, political well oversight that I think in your book was was fascinating. Was it like that all of them, Roosevelt and and Wilson all said that we want to insulate the, the, the wise enlightened class from politics. And yet here they were professional politicians, although it was really the theoreticians who used that you, that you cite like James Landis and so forth. Could you, could you discuss, I mean, are, are, is, is, is Fauci an example of that? That someone who is, a career administrator who spent his entire life basically in that role. And, and, and there is no way that you can't, you can't impeach him. You can't do anything to him. Well, he wields incredible power uh, over the daily lives of citizens and uh, never once has had to uh, face and will never have to face uh, uh, voters. Uh, that's, I mean, that's unrepublican uh, in every way that you can think of. And he's a perfect example of that. Uh, in fact, um, you know, used to, when I used to talk about this to, to, you know, audiences or write about it, you know, it, it's hard to get people to sort of see the problem, right. To see what you're talking about. It sounds kind of abstract, you know, the administrative state, the separation of politics administration and what, you know, this sounds kind of accurate. People get it now after that was before the pandemic. <laughs> now people know exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And, and just, just briefly, I mean, the, the principle as it emerges out of the progressive era, the, the argument was that uh, if if you want to have professional expert government, you know, that we've got, you know, history has provided us with so much more scientific knowledge than we used to have. And if you want to make, to, to put that at the disposal of government, to allow government to do so much more and use all of this fancy scientific knowledge, then the problem is that politics gets in the way of that, ordinary politics, right? People in politics are concerned about their, like, getting reelected. They're concerned about the, the you know, narrow interests and constituency. You know, in other words, people who have to vote for them and the members of Congress actually have to worry about voting for, say, you know, crazy environmental uh, uh, regulations that might destroy the coal industry because maybe they represent people who work in the coal industry, right? And so these are... And so the progressive vision was if we're going to get government doing the right thing, the objective good, the scientifically right thing, we need to get politics out of the way. We need to liberate these decision makers, these rule makers from the necessity of answering to voters. And that's what they meant by the separation of politics and administration. Or even congressional committees. I mean, the disdain, the contempt that Fauci treated Senator Paul. I thought at least Senator Paul has been elected by his state. Thousands of people voted for him. It just was. It was just the the, the amazing defiance of any kind of oversight that he. It, it was like he didn't want to be there at all unless he could just peddle his his views without. Well, actually the, the presumption clearly was this that this was uh, this was an insult to him, that he should not have to be. Uh, questioned by a representative of the people who who's a was, physician who's a physician <laughs> well i mean even let's leave that aside i mean that actually makes it worse but i mean by any representative you know the, the in other words what is fauci's claim to authority it is science it's his education it's you know i'm an expert 
and you people who are questioning me, you are mere politicians. You just you represent people who you know, have their agendas and their narrow political interests. And you know the that's all uh, well and good if you don't live in a republic. If you live in a regime where you know technocrats rule without consent of the governed, the problem that they have. And by the way, this is a problem that the progressives saw. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is absolutely open about this. The, the problem that they have with bringing about government by expertise is that they have to do it in a regime that's supposed to be democratic and it gets in the way. And you can see this is, this is our politics today, right? That, uh, that, that the greatest frustration to the advocates of administrative statism that we have is, the, is elections, that these darn people have to consent and that they might not consent. And so uh, that, that's exactly why you see, uh, you know, government by administrative agency, uh, agencies making rules. You know, let's just go through the variety of issues, right? Just think of the hot button issues, immigration, right? Why can't they get, you know, amnesty for illegals or other kinds of, you know, mass immigration uh, things through, con- well, because members of Congress won't vote for them. Why won't they vote for them? Because they want to be reelected. That is to say, the people won't vote. Even Democratic Congresses, you couldn't get this stuff through. Environmental regulation. Uh, the, the last big environmental uh, legislation failed during a Democratic Congress uh, because they were afraid to vote for it. And so they, don't, they want this stuff done by people like Fauci or other administrators in other areas who don't have to answer to, uh, to voters. Uh, when the Department of Education when and wrote their, you know, their, their regulation or their letter, you know, mandating, uh, you know, uh, trans bathrooms, you know, that every, you know, little girl's bathroom in a public school had to be open to any boy who wanted to go in there. Not in a million years would any law ever have been enacted doing that because those who voted for the law would, would get thrown out on their ear in the next election. So instead it's done by administrative agencies and this has its roots going back to the progressive era. And the and the judiciary supports the administrative state, which you which is a big part of your of your book, which is really fascinating. That's a, it's that's a very complicated question. It 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 has for a long time. Now it's it's you know a little bit of back and forth. But but I mean the you know the up without going into all the details of that, people should read the book. But mm. you know the upshot of it, hope would be most of our policy today. You know, think of the big questions. Um, whether you know it's on immigration, in, environment, things that that, that you know, Congress punts, it's basically now a fight between the two unelected entities in our government, mm. right? It ends up you know, agencies make these rules, then they get sued, and so it goes into courts. So unelected agency administrators make rules, and then unelected judges end up ruling on them. Um, the political branches. Uh, who are supposed to do these things because they actually are accountable to voters, which is how it works in a republic or it's supposed to work. Uh, they're happy to punt these questions to courts and agencies. Well, I was going to say one thing. We, I, I wanted to get to the Chevron rule, but before I do that, I was very surprised in your book to learn from from your book that uh, that um, Antonin Scalia was a supporter, at least at first. You make the point that he was leaning towards the end of his life, moving away from it, I think. But we'll just, I'll ask you to explain the Chevron rule. But one thing I wanted to say before that is that, um, that is it, it seems like on the left and the right that the, the, the judges and the people like, like 
Scalia, they they were also creatures of the administrative agencies. That's how he entered government. I looked at I looked back when he was appointed. He served in the in the Nixon administration as as a regulator of telecommunications, and they they they, they seem to have this mindset of well, I I want to. They're protective of the agencies because that's where they come from themselves. That's how they start their careers, right? And many well, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. In and here, you know, you have to consider the political circumstances, and it shows you the danger of you being too short-sighted uh, in, in, in how, you, how you see these things. So if you think of the situation where uh, the, this, this great deference to agencies came to be the dominant feature of our judiciary, right, where they would just say, hey, you know, the courts, the courts aren't, aren't here to second-guess the administrative agencies, you have to think of the political situation, right? For, and that's so, the Chevron rule, right? The Chevron yeah, doctrine. That- yeah. For, so for someone like, you know, um, Antonin Scalia, may rest in peace, or uh, William Rehnquist also, uh, you know, they're, put yourself back into the 1970s and put yourself in their spot. So they're, they're, first of all, you have decades of dominance by the Democrats in Congress. I mean, you know, remember, we didn't used to have a competitive competitive race for the House of Representatives. It, it's that's only happened since 1994. Mm. So you had you know, what was thought to be permanent Democratic control, at least of the House of Representatives. Then uh, you had the Warren Court. That is, say, the courts were seen as being, uh, you know, c- captured by the activist left. And so the only institution where. Uh, anyone on the right had sort of any chance to make an impact of government was in the executive. Hmm. And so uh, what what folks you know, like Scalia and like Rehnquist were in favor of is getting courts off the back of agencies uh, because the courts were a disaster. You know, they're looking down hmm. the bench and they're seeing William Brennan and all other kinds of crazy leftists. And so their mission was, you know, let, let's get the judiciary out of the way of the executive. Uh, and so they wrote these doctrines. You, re- you referenced the Chevron doctrine, which is a doctrine in administrative law. Other doctrines, which said, which made it difficult for somebody to go into court and 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 complain that hey, this agency is actually doing more than what the law seems to allow. And the problem with that is, as the agencies became more and more active, as agencies became the principal mechanism for the implementation of leftist statism which is what they are now. Mm. Um, well, these now all of a sudden, these courts are much more anxious to go in and scrutinize what agencies are doing, but, but they have these doctrines that they've inherited from the 70s and the 80s, which make it very difficult for them to do that. Now, there's been some revisiting of that, as I indicate in the book, uh, but we are, we are sort of suffering now because for so long, uh, those many of us on the right uh, thought it was a good idea to leave agencies alone to do do as they pleased. Well, you make yeah. make the point in the book that the progressives wanted to insulate um, agencies or the expert class from political um, pressure, but it's it's really been fascinating. I wonder if you would comment on the fact that in the Biden administration that the FDA called in an expert panel, an outside expert panel outside the agency. And then when the expert panel said, no, we don't think it's a good idea to have booster shots in the FDA, which is a very politicized agency, was basically siding with the White House against its own expert panel, which was the whole point of the expert panel to have the expertise, which the progressives argued for, 
but now they're politicizing the the agencies they created or is that is that well you you've put your finger on uh, you know, on the essential point in all of this, which is the, you know, the, the progressive idea that somehow you can create part of government that is, you know, immune from political bias, uh, is, a, is completely farcical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, that, 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 that could be done, you know, Matt would Matt would James, what would James Madison say, right? James Madison would say, People are people by nature. They're self-interested. You know, Federalist 10, the latent causes of faction are so in the nature of man. Uh, that any entity that is given power uh, is going to have an interest and uh, an ideology uh, that's going to greatly influence how it uses that power. And nobody who knows anything about how Washington works or how agencies work uh, can maintain with a straight face that somehow they're, they're neutral. You know, we need to... Uh, it's, it's such a common thing to hear. Right? We need to get the politicians out of it, right? So mm-hmm. we've heard this all throughout the pandemic. Oh, tr- only the science. Keep the politicians out. You know, Joe Biden saying uh, when he was running uh, for the presidency, well, we shouldn't be hearing from the president at all. Uh, only only the experts, only Fauci and whoever mm-hmm. else, uh, you know, used to get dragged up there in front of the cameras. Uh, and, you know, a- as if that's how you function in, in a republic. And of course, now that we have the Biden administration you know, in power, uh, you see, of course, this reality exposed. Uh, the, the agencies are completely politicized. Uh, and the uh, edicts that are, that are handed down, uh, no one seriously maintains that these are, uh, th- that anything remotely approaching science governs any of this. You just cited one example. Um, we all understand the politics and the ideology and that the agencies are simply tools of that. Uh, now, in terms of the ideology, it's a leftist ideology. Mm. And so uh, the Democratic politicians are perfectly willing to sort of mouth deference to experts because they know that the experts aren't going to govern on the basis of expertise. They're going to govern on the basis of their expert, uh, their leftist ideology. And so they're perfectly happy to play that game. Uh, the pandemic has has exposed this, uh, and I think people see it increasingly. Well, I was going to say, apropos of politicizing uh, government agencies, not always even science. It's the Department of Justice going after parents at school boards meetings, <laughs> and that's really frightening. I mean, that's sure. Funny. I mean, and any agency, um, it's it's easiest to make the case for deferring to agencies when they're, you know, allegedly scientific questions, right? So people you could see people being swayed by the arguments of, well, you know, we really wouldn't want politicians involved and, you know, individual drug approvals, you know, that, well, unless you get to the situation we have today when that's exactly what's going on. I mean, you, you, you cited a, uh, you know, a very good uh, example of this. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a powerful argument. Uh, You see people that, uh, who, who one used to think, uh, you know, they were intelligent, you know, who would just get up there and say, I don't, you know, uh, I don't want to hear from anyone who doesn't have MD after their name or anyone who doesn't PhD after their name or something like that, uh, which is what, what, what that means is you don't want to live in a democratic society anymore. Um, and that's frightening to me. The number of people that actually talk like that uh, is, is really quite frightening. Well, one thing, apropos, you made the point in the book that the original progressives were extremely well-read people. I mean, even before he was president, 
Wilson had a reputation as a leading scholar and he was president of Princeton and he was notable before he became governor of New Jersey and so forth. And, but when I look at in, in the book, you argue about, you argue that we need to return to have an understanding of the constitution and basic fundamental, but the, but the progressives of today, they don't even have, they don't even have an understanding that the previous progressives do. They just don't like it. I mean, it, when, when they even notice like Ocasio-Cortez, as far as I know, the only time that she talks about something having to do with the constitution, she seems to not like the fact that Western senators have two senators. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think a difference between uh, early progressivism and contemporary progressivism is I think that among the early progressives that many of them actually believed it, uh, that they were very sincere in, you know, they, they thought that the 19th century had been transformative. You know, you've got the whole so-called Darwinian revolution. Uh, and so for so many progressives, they, they thought that this was a sign, uh, this was an indication that, you know, we could move it to it. You know, we were, we, history was in fact moving us to the next stage. And you know, so there's a great deal of belief in progress. Uh, I don't see much of that uh, at all today. Uh, I think that um, uh, that that progressivism today is, uh, by and large, uh, is just a, a cover for uh, the ruling class maintaining, gaining more power, and maintaining that power. Well, I was going to say, what who who would be a progressive? I guess to me, that, that as I read your book, that. The modern equivalent of the progressives that you profile would probably be John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, right? And not and Ocasio Cortez and, and and the Young Turks, the or the Young the Squad and so forth. They seem to accept the administrative state. They just want pork for their particular constituency. They just want to have it more representative of, of people of color and so forth. But they're not questioning the whole basis of it, are they? Or well, I mean, it's hard to say, right? You you have to remember. I mean, these so hi- history is complicated. There are lots of different influences uh, that are that are difficult to disentangle uh, and it's very difficult to say you know some linear movement you know and that that you know here we see today this direct linear descendant of you know this certain ideology so it, it's hard to do that I think uh, you know you one of the things that absolutely paves the way for today's progressivism from the original progressive era was the the idea of of discrediting nature as a standard, uh, and thus, when you when you uh, when you disconnect politics from any grounding in nature and from any grounding, therefore, in in limited government, uh, you know that opens the floodgates. And today, we're suffering from that. You mean human nature or nature? Human generally? nature. Human, human nature. nature. Yeah, mm-hmm. human nature. Uh, and by the way, I mean you know you have a lot of transformation that takes place in the 1960s too, and that's that's a uh, it's partly based on the progressivism that came before, and it's partly something that goes well beyond uh, the original progressivism. So there are, you, you know, there are a lot of factors and a lot of claims uh, to that to that label. Um, I, I do think that, you know, one sort of, if you kind of take a step back and say, okay, well, what looks the same by and large? And what, what, what the progressives were arguing for, the original progressives, was a ruling class. Uh, now it may have been a ruling class that they genuinely thought would have scientific expertise and so on, but, but a ruling class. Uh, and that's basically what we have today. That, that, that's what the, the current 
regime, the current establishment, whether it's the the old Kerry Clinton wing or the new, you know, Ocasio-Cortez wing. I mean, it, it doesn't really seem to matter. It's it's uh, the the um, you know we just lost recently Angelo, the great Angelo Cotavilla, uh, who who with me was a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, and he you know he's the one who really put his finger on this. I think um, you know, the idea that that. That what you have today is uh, uh, an assertion by the ruling class of its of its prerogatives uh, and a desire to maintain those prerogatives and and uh, more than anything else, to my mind, that's that's what describes the current situation. Well, I, th- I think your book is fascinating, and it's a little it's a little a little disheartening at the end because you you make the you make the point at the end that is it possible to go back to some of the constitutional foundational thinking and are there any republicans on the scene that or or is a full-throated return to constitutionalism just just and given that the fact that the constitution has been derided for a generation now in public school education that people don't even believe in it the way they did 50 or 70 years ago is it is it possible to 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 return convincingly to those principles or well that's the question of the day and i and i and i agree you know i'm i'm very (laughs) Uh, that's the one that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you mentioned uh, in, in your intro that, um, you, you know, that, that, you know, it's hard or it used to be hard f- even for progressives to be open about, you know, their rejection of, of the declaration and constitution. But, um, you know, that, that's, that's increasingly not the case, right? Mm. So think about the fact that the this is just amazing that the National Archives, the National Archives now uh, posts warning labels, yeah, trigger warnings, trigger warnings <laughs> um, that that are very founding documents. You know, are are somehow dangerous or hurtful or you know, something upsetting. I mean, yeah. This is this kind of insanity, right? Is is now um, one just shrugs one shoulders like, yeah, well. You know, of course, that's what they did. That's that's the nature of our times. Yeah, it's so, not even funny anymore. It's just accepted. We don't it's even just, laugh. It's just accepted, right? Yeah. I mean, what used to be you you would you would think satire even ten years ago mm. is just yeah. Of course, people are crazy like that. That's just how it is. And so uh, I, that's that's what worries me, right? Have we have we gotten to a point? Because what what conservatives, you know, conservatism, going back to its roots in this country, has always meant preservation. Um, you know, keeping, you know, up, upholding the, the inherited order of things um, because of the, you know, the great value of what has been handed down to us. But it's, it's certainly a question today, I think, on any thinking person's mind, has the effect of a of hundred plus years of this kind of progressive poison that's been, been seeping in from the top, um, ha- has it been so great that the, the institutions have become corrupted beyond repair. Mm. Uh, and I mean, that is, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's very troubling to think about. And it's kind of the way I put it in the book, you know, at the end is you, that, that it seems to me we have citizens of two very different regimes, which is to say, you know, fundamental principles living and occupying in the same country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not even a sectional difference in the way that it, that it was in the 1850s. Uh, and so it's, it's an even bigger mess in certain respects. Uh, and it, it, uh, uh, I don't have an answer. 
uh, as to what happens. Uh, I don't know anybody who, who really does, uh, but it's, it's very troubling times. Well, well, so, so that we don't end on a completely downbeat note, I will ask about the future of you and the, as a tr- just squeeze in the last traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm, I'm uh, actually uh, working on kind of promoting this book and yep. going out and talking to lots of different audiences. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, to, to, to end on a hopeful note, as you, <laughs> as you I'm, I'm known as, uh, you know, kind of a downer sometimes. So people <laughs> listen to me, um, I guess, just in, in my nature. But, but you're a charming downer. I mean, you're a well, nice, friendly I, downer. Well, it's nice to hear. I try my best. But, but uh, you know. There, I spend a lot of time talking to people around the country who are what you might call sort of normal Americans, people mm-hmm. in people in Middle America. You know, it's part of the work I do as you know for the Claremont Institute and my job at, at Hillsdale College. We we go out all over the country, uh, and it, it doing that reminds one of you know the goodness of a lot of the people in the country and the sense the sensibility of a lot of the people in the country and people who are um, inclined to be active and inclined to participate who maybe hadn't before, who, because, you know, by and large, uh, you know, people who are conservative, we don't like to occupy our time dealing with government. We have, you know, we have jobs, we have families, we have churches, we have, th- you know, private sector kinds of activities that we, we love and, and are attached to. Um, we wish we didn't have to spend all of our time uh, fighting off the likes of, of you know, crazy leftists who want to run and ruin our lives. Mm. But that's the situation we've been put in. And there are a lot of people who are now doing that, who are seeing that. And, and the, I talk to them a lot. Uh, and so that, you know, to me is always I'm always grounded in, in that uh, and, and that there are, uh, you know, this country ultimately has been sustained in its crises by uh, by its people. And there's still a lot of them out there. And, uh, you know, as I say, part of what I do is I get to talk to a lot of them. So so that 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 does uh, to the extent I can be hopeful about the future. That's that's the reason. Well, I just want to mention that you mentioned Hillsdale College and the Claremont Institute, and both of them are very rich with online offerings. And Hillsdale has a series of lectures and, and videos that are very, very well worth exploring. And the Claremont Institute, of course, publishes the Claremont Review of Books, I believe, which is which I subscribe to and is excellent. And they also have online podcasts and, and online uh materials that are, are very worthwhile. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today. Ronald J. Pistrito, author of the book, America Transformed, The Rise and Legacy of American Progressivism. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.